0: This is episode 88 of the Travel Writing World podcast. David Eimer is my guest today. He is the author of two books The Emperor Far Away Travels at the Edge of China and A Savage Dreamland Journeys in Burma, the latter of which we talk about today. We start off this episode talking about Burma, its politics, and its peoples. But about halfway, we shift gears and chat about travel literature. Specifically, I asked David about travelogues, the role of history and context in the types of travel books he likes, and about the future of the genre. I'll say here that the audio quality isn't the best in this episode, which we recorded way back in February, but I hope you'll ignore it, as David really has his finger on the pulse of Burma, as you'll no doubt hear. Anyway, before we start the episode today, just a note to say... Please tell your friends about the podcast, leave a review on the Apple Podcasts app or whichever podcasting app you use, and support the show with only a few dollars a month at travelwritingworld.com forward slash support. Lastly, to stay up to date with travel, nature, and place writing news, join the hundreds of other subscribers and sign up for Genius Loci, my free monthly email roundup of news and links at jeremybassetti.com. That's with two S's and two T's. A new roundup goes out at the first of the month. So now, here is David Eimer. Well, David, welcome to the podcast.
1: Uh, thank you, Jeremy. Thank you for having me.
0: So you're the author of several books, but most recently, uh, A Savage Streamland: Journeys in Burma. It's a. It's about a country that, if I'm honest, didn't really cross my mind at all until uh, I think Obama visited back in 2014 or so. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I read or- Orwell's work on the country many many years ago, but I, I guess I'm embarrassed to say that it was it wasn't in, until Obama's visit that you know I I gave the country mu- much thought, and even then, like my education on the country comes from you know books like yours, but. Um, By the way of introduction, um, Burma, Myanmar, Rangoon, Yangon. Can you kind of like demystify the names of the country and explain, you know, why you chose Burma over Myanmar in in your book's subtitle?
1: Sure. Um, Actually, you know, that Obama visit, I think was 2012 because I I covered it actually as a journalist. I was still working uh, for a British newspaper then. The Telegraph, and um, yeah, I remember him speaking in um, in one of the halls of Rangoon University, um, which is now officially uh, Yang- Yangon University. Um, the names um, changed basically in, in around 1989 when the former milit- you know the former junta who were running Burma then decided to change a lot of the colonial names. That, that included um, changing the name of the country. Um, however, you know, the name changes were completely you know, enforced and unilateral, there was no consultation with uh, the Burmese people or anyone or any of the peoples uh, living in the country. As a result of that, some countries <clears throat> don't um, haven't actually officially um, accepted the name change the u k and the u s are um are two of those um if you look on say the state department website you'll see it's Burma, although they do put myanmar in in brackets
2: mm-hmm.
1: after it and uh and it's also still rangoon and not Yangon i didn't um you know i didn't i thought i would stick with burma on those on that basis and also on the basis that i think that's how that's how most people who know the country um, they they know it by that name. I stuck with Burma, but I did um change yeah, you know, I did update Rangoon to Yangon um, but that's partly because you know the, the two names you know, uh, it was originally Yangon before it was Rangoon right um, so uh it, it seems sensible to stick with that mm-hmm. but yeah, I mean um. Yeah, it's all—it's all symbolic of, of what the military have done to the country, really, and are still doing now. Obviously, um, in the last sixty, seventy years, that um, you know that, that that they would sort of decide to change the name of the country without actually consulting any of the fifty odd million people who live there.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, uh, so, I, you, you chose to use this old kind of colonial name um but your i don't think your book is at all sympathetic uh, of the british empire um which control control, no, I'm glad. control I'm, and, and
1: my you know I, the first book i wrote about china was um you know that was about china as an imperial power just within its own borders um so no i am i'm, I'm, I'm no <laughs> fan of colonialism by anyone
0: right but i wanted to ask you um, so, so in one part of the book you you mentioned um You know how like the downtown area I think of Yangon, which is like so congested, um, and just like a mess, a nightmare. Um, and this was precisely because of you know the colonial impact on the development of the city. Um, but you know this this reminded me, um, like many years ago, I remember hearing uh in a different context, but I remember hearing Gaddafi through translation, of course, give a speech about Libya, and I don't remember verbatim what he said, but the implication or the gist of what he was saying was that, you know, the country was going through like so many issues um, and those issues rested like squarely on, on its colonial heritage. And this was interesting for me to hear, uh, for me to hear this from such a heavy handed dictator, right? (laughs) Um, Right, uh, History and context are the substrate from which, you know, the present grows. But I, I guess like the question I'm lurching towards is, um, you know, is colonialism a sort of like original sin that we can never wash off? Or um, how do you balance like the colonial heritage of a country against its like native situation, for, for lack of a better term, in, in your reporting, in your assessment?
1: Well, I mean, I, I think you can do it. And I think some countries, you know, some countries shake off, you know, the colonial legacy um, easier than others and, and maybe more successfully. Um, you know, I mean, in terms of, of, of reporting on it, you know, you've got to be aware. I think of just you know what that past is. You've got to know the history, mm-hmm. and um, you've got to understand how it has influenced the country. You know, often, yeah, you know, often, you know, for the worse. I mean, you know, there's no question that um, you know British colonial rule in Burma you know, was, was not good for the country, um, in any way. Um, uh, but that isn't, I would w- would also say that's not just, you know, the reason why the country is the way it is today. Mm-hmm. It's one, it's one of the reasons. Um, I think, you yeah, know, more, the more direct reason is, is, is the fact that it's been, you know, run as a dictatorship by the military for, you know, 50 odd years. Um, yeah, it's interesting when Aung San Suu Kyi, you know, emerged as as the figurehead of the sort of pro democracy movement. She said that you know fighting the military was like you know um, yeah, it was like a second battle for war for independence. Um, but, yeah, the, the various junta's in Burma are, have been have acted as colonial powers towards the ethnic minorities who live out in the borderlands while also, you know, repressing their own people. And, you know, it's a sort of pretty imperial way of ruling. Um, mm-hmm. it, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think you just have to be super aware of of, of a country's history. And, always, you yeah, know, you've got to remember, too, that, you know, you, but when you look at things, you know, you're looking at it with, you know, you know, we're all products of our backgrounds, our education. Right. Whoever you are, you've got to be aware of that, obviously, um, as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, you know, the the, what, the conversation around what's going on in in Burma and Myanmar now. Um, I guess at the beginning of last year, the the junta, you know, took back power <laughs> from the uh, from the liberal movement or the pro democracy movement, and now it's just like a repeat of what has been going on since. It seems from from the outside, at least uh it's a it's a continuation of what was going on back beginning in the 60s
2: oh yeah i mean and
1: um it is i mean i I think yeah i think that's i think that's being the military's big big mistake is that they think it's still um you know 1962 or 1988 and they could you know they could crush pro-democracy uprisings and there was no social media and people didn't have camera phones and um you know, you know if you look back at, at the you know the two previous big coups you know in sixty two and eighty eight i mean there's very, very little you know footage of it because you know they could just close the border in those days. there were no camera crews you know there's a little bit of sort of footage shot by local people, but that was super dangerous. There's not even very much still photography you know it, mm-hmm. it's they're really undocumented whereas' this you know the general you know hadn't realized that you know one of the effects of yeah, the pro you know on you know, San Suu Kyi and the National League for democracy winning the election previous two elections and taking over is that you know there's a whole sort of generation of very young people, you know so-called Gen Z or gen z um you know who, who don't really remember previous military rule and for whom social media and all the rest of it is just you know complete second nature i mean they, and so um I think the generals have been completely taken aback by the reaction of the Myanmar people. Um, I think, you know, I don't think they ever thought in their wildest dreams that ethnic, you know, Burmese people as opposed to ethnic minority people would actually be, you know, shooting at them and, and you know engaging in a civil war with them, which is what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but you know, the times have changed since uh, you know since the 1980s and yeah, you know, the Myanmar, the, the Myanmar military has not realized that
0: hmm And one of uh, the things that i I learned from your book you'd mentioned earlier about how the junta was perhaps um, acting as if it were a colonial or an, an imperial power within within Myanmar, but I learned from your book just just how large uh, the country is. I didn't quite realize how how big in my mind. I guess I envisioned this like slither of you know territory in Southeast Asia, but it's quite large and quite diverse, different. Excuse me, different ecosystems, different landscapes, but also ethnically and religiously, it's quite diverse. I mean, you have, you know, Christians in the mountains, you have Muslims um, kind of by Bangladesh, you have, you know, Buddhists throughout the entire country, you have this kind of like folk animist uh, religion. It's a quite a diverse oh, Hindu people as well. Yeah, right. Um, so how how is this? How, do you, how How is this kind of diversity? How how do you think this like diversity is playing out with the current uh, kind of political issues going on on there today? I mean, well, I mean,
1: I'd say first of all, the you know the, the diversity of the country, yeah, you know, of, of, of the peoples there, um, and and of the landscapes is one of the reasons why you know the first time I went to Burma, I was really sort of taken aback by the country.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, you know, this is you know, in two thousand and ten, you know, and yeah, and like you at that stage, you know, I didn't know very much about the country. Um, and that you know, really got me interested and hooked on it, and which you know led to the process, you know, you know six years later, of starting to write the book. Um, I think it's very interesting the current situation, because previously there was a very big divide between you know the ethnic minorities and the majority Burma people, you know, the people we call Burmese. Um, yeah, they you know, the uh, the ethnic minority felt very strongly that the Bamar people were you know sort of yeah yeah they were basically on the side of the military in terms of what they were doing in, in the borderlands in terms of sort of harassing them um, in terms of the fact that there were some sort of mini civil wars going on in the borderlands and that you know the Bamar people were not supporting that the, the minorities they were supporting the military who were acting. In an extremely repressive way, as they are now, mm-hmm. what the current current crisis has done has sort of woken up the, the majority of Burma people to the fact that you know this is how the military actually operates. That you know, far from being you know, yeah, you know, yeah, you know, an army that one could be proud of in the same way you know that you know the people I guess in you know, the US and the UK are, you know are proud of their militaries. Yeah, you know, and, and so um. It's had also you know, it's had that effect. Matt's had the effect also, sort of uniting the ethnic minorities and the majority of Bamar people. And you know now that the uh, the you know, the National Unity Government, which is the you know the government of the opposition, um, are you know, already talking about a genuine federal union in the future. That, you know, that when you know, when the, the military have been defeated. Burma will get the sort of genuine federal union where different regions have some sort of autonomy which was you know actually was meant to be was is what the country was originally meant to be after independence mm-hmm. whether that actually happens of course is uh is it, it, something else but um you know it's been a spectacularly unsuccessful coup you know it's united the whole country um just about against the military, regardless of their ethnicity or, or their religion, so, you know, I, I mean i've heard it described as maybe the least successful coup <laughs> in southeast modern Southeast Asian history i mean i'd have to check that, but
0: yeah it seems like it's a situation that puts Western powers in, in a tight spot you know because you know one of the, the tools that they can use um, you know are sanctions, and sanctions have the unintended consequence of also or maybe this is the point it hurts hurts the people and if the people are kind of united against this issue then maybe uh imposing sanctions will i guess mess up the 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 unity that is going on in the country right now so i guess like what what is the way forward um does western powers as united states kind of just have a laissez-faire attitude hands off let it work itself out or should they kind of like tighten the knot a little bit and impose sanctions to to, to punish the junta
1: um, I think well yeah I mean you're right to say that sanctions, you know, yeah, they're, they're a double edged sword. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also the fact that with you know Burma, and Myanmar that you know the country is still relatively separate from uh, the rest of the world in terms of yeah, the Western world because you know, it was closed for so long under the military I and mean, then it's had this sort of brief period of reopening.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Sort of, you know, sort of say if you call it from say 2010 to 2020, I mean, it's probably even less than a decade. And you have, you know, there isn't actually that much Western investment you know, in the country. So, you know, there's not so much that Western companies can do. There is you know some involvement in in the in the natural gas and oil
2: mm-hmm.
1: and i think you know i mean there's pressure already some oil companies have already pulled out Yeah, you know, i
2: think you know it, it, sanctions will not end um
1: and and the junta you know at all i mean um it will be uh, you know in terms of what the west can do i don't think it can do very much i mean um the only People who can really sort of apply any sort of meaningful pressure would be ASEAN, which is the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, which is kind of like a you know an EU for the region. Um, but it's a notoriously sort of divided body, and obviously some of the countries, you know, in it are also basically sort of military um, dictatorships in their own way. So there's a reluctance to put pressure on. Um, Hmm. that's interesting in the the short term I couldn't say I was at all optimistic about the situation I think um, you know the fighting will intensify Um, and it already
2: is basically a civil war it will Mm -hmm. think that that situation will worsen Um,
0: what about what about China I know it's uh, benefit China I mean China obviously
2: you know is a
1: neighbor um, it shares a very long border. Um I don't think the Chinese care who runs the country. I don't you know, <laughs> but what they do want is a stable country.
0: They want the J Yeah, you know,
1: they, they 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 want to be able to, their companies to be able to, you know, carry on with their investments. Uh and they also want the uh port on the Indian Ocean and in Rakhine State, which will give them you know access to the Indian Ocean for the first time. Um I, I imagine that, you know, in, in some ways they would probably rather be doing this, you know, rather as on San Suu Kyi they were dealing with, um, not because they're interested in democracy, just because it's... A friend. The country was running smoother under mm. her, put it that way. Mm-hmm. Well, they certainly don't want this situation, which is, you know, a raging civil war.
2: Right. I think, uh, you know... But, you know,
1: whether, whether that doesn't mean that they can tell the generals to stop.
2: Right.
0: Right. Well, one of the reasons why I like your book, David, is um, because it is isn't just a travel book. Um, yeah, sure, it, it recounts your journeys in the country, um, but I don't think it does so from the vantage point of like just like a passer through, you know, somebody like flittering <laughs> through the country like a stone skipping over water. Or well, something. that's
1: very kind of you to say that, I'm glad, and I'm glad to hear you. Glad to hear you say it, Jeremy.
0: Well, no, it, it it does read um kind of like a very a, a deep book it's a book that pulls us into the depths of history and politics and culture and it's not it's not a superficial book um which is to say it's a rich book it's 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 meaty right so um in in terms of like travel travel literature we sometimes read these kind of meatier kind of reportier type books and then we get this other kind of skipping through a country kind of book and i not to disparage those two i think they're um both there's a time and a place for both of them um but just just curious to to get your take on this like what is what is your assessment on the state of uh travel literature the travel writing genre in terms of books
1: well i mean um you know i I'm not a fan either of those books where you know the author just turns up at the airport and you know spends three months and then departs to write their book um I've only ever written about countries I've lived in, um, and you know, Brooklyn, I've written of all, but you know, been be basically at Southeast and East Asia, so the same region as well. Um, you know, that you know, there are obvious benefits to that. You know, because you know, you're living in the country, you experience it on a completely different level to a visitor. Um, you also have much more time, just because you're living there. You know, to go off to you know you know, to go to all the places you want to go to and, and you get to meet most important of all you get to meet the local people and um and hopefully you know develop you know relationships which you know you can um which which lead you on to you know much greater insights about the country. Um yeah you know, I, I think you know travel writing at the moment it's you know it's unfashionable basically. I mean it certainly it is in the UK. I don't know in, in the US, Same. I get a sense it probably is in the US as well. Um, yeah, there's a lot of books out there now coming out which you know I would regard as travel books, but which you know they're being described as memoir or it's nature writing or it's you know it's history. Um, you know, it's like people are bending over, yeah, backwards not to write travel <laughs> books, even though they are travel books. Um, I always you know, wanted to mix history in there uh, with, with the reportage and with, you know, the travel writing, which is, you know, when, when you go to different places. So, I, you know, I always, you know, that's how I, I approached the book. I wanted it to be a mix and, um, and, you know, also to be very sort of, you know, people-driven so that it was hopefully most of the time, you know, that that, that it was it was the peoples of Burma who were, you know, telling the stories.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wonder, as, as you're saying this, I wonder, you know, to, to what extent the travel writing part, you know, has been, I guess, transformed from a genre into just like a trope or a component of another type of book, like, as you say, history book or um, nature. I, think, I don't know if it's,
1: you know, I don't know if it's a permanent move. I, mean, you know, I mean, you know, publishing is, you know, it's, it's like right. movies, it's like uh, music industry, you know, it's a cyclical beast. Um yeah,
2: right now, you know, it kind of looks like the travel writing is kind
1: of you know, merging with all these other genres. But I think, you know, travel writing has always been you know lots of different genres, hasn't it? It's one of the it's one of the, you know, the, the appealing things about it if you're a writer is you know, you, you have a chance, you can do all sorts.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, you could write your travel book as a sort of almost like a novel, which is you know, someone like you know, Rory MacLean sort of did used to do that. Yeah, he wrote a good book about
2: Burma, but um, Under the Dragon. Um, so, yeah,
1: I, maybe now it's just because it's a little unfashionable that it, it seems like it's being subsumed. But, um, yeah, I'll be interested to see where it is in 10 or 20 years. I, you know, I'll bet it's different.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you remind me of that Charles Nickel book, um, Border, Borderlines, which Borderlands. Borderlands, yeah. Yeah. Which also... That's, you know, that's, a good read. It reads like a novel, as you as you say, um, but it's also a travel book. Um, but uh, you know, I wanted to circle back here and, and touch on something that you mentioned uh, about, like that you're not a fan of the kind of uh, the types of travel books where somebody uh, arrives at the airport and stays in a country for three months. And uh,
1: I'll I'll qualify that by saying, Jeremy, that if you are a really, really, really good writer, you can get away with that. <laughs> right. Yeah, so someone like Paul Thoreau kind of does that, doesn't he? Yeah, and the- and, yeah, but most people don't write like Paul Thoreau, so the result <laughs> the result is disappointing. So, yeah, it, you know, if if you it, it, so yeah, some people can do it, but I think it, it, it's it's very hard. To do.
0: Yeah, and I get what you say, what you mean here about about the richness and the depth of spending time in a place and knowing the country well and knowing the people well and having contacts and kind of human resources there to. To really get to know a place can do. Yeah, it's very different from harm. just, you know,
1: like but, sitting in a hotel room and sort of saying, well, today I'll go out and I'll see this place and I'll, you know, I've arranged to do an interview. With, you know, it's, it's a less organic
2: way of doing it. Yeah. Sure. Well, you
0: mentioned the um, the Rory McLean book. I was wondering if you if, um, had any other kind of travel books uh in mind that you admire that you um that you dr- Oh a
1: lot. I mean um I mean I, I know you 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 probably have most of them on your podcast, um or the ones who are living anyway. Um I was thinking about this. I mean yeah I, I think the best book about Southeast Asia I've read recently and yeah which was written recently I would say is um, Indonesia it's etc by Elizabeth Pisani. I don't know if you've heard of it. Um, no, I think it came out 2014, 15, and it's a really good book about a country <clears throat> which is like super difficult to write about because you know Indonesia is an absolutely massive place with you know thousands and thousands of islands. Mm-hmm. Um, and she really made it work. And yeah, I think that's a good book. Um, you know, I like Captain mm-hmm. Casablanca. I mean, um, the border. Uh, I like John Gimlet's stuff, um, you know, from modern, from modern writers. you know, present day writers. I've got the Cal Flynn book, um, Islands of Abandonment sitting opposite me. Um, and I will start it very soon. I've heard good things about it.
0: Mm-hmm. I think you'll like that. Um,
1: and yeah, you, know, you know, then, you know, that's, you know, it's got a very rich sort of heritage, I think, travel writing, um, Maybe, yeah, yeah, of course, you can argue that it's, it, it's a rather European, Eurocentric male um, heritage. But, um, you know, I mean, I mean I'm mean, i a big fan of Norman Lewis. So I think it's probably the best of the 20th century. Travel writers, um, you know, like Laurie Lee. You know, I do like Patrick Leather um, Colin Fubron, um, Yeah, but I also like Bruce Chatwin, who was sort of very different. Yeah, there's lots and lots of people. Um, I think, you know, it, it's. I mean, it's testament to, you
2: know, that
1: you know, one of you know, it's a justification for travel writing when you look back and see sort of how much good stuff there is that has been written before and is still being written.
0: Where do you think um, the genre will go moving forward within the context of the pandemic and shutdowns and? Those issues?
1: Well, you know, it's interesting. I mean, you know, I mean, book sales are meant to have been good uh, through the pandemic, aren't they? Um, yeah. And you kind of think that if people can't travel, that maybe some of them would, you know, be sitting inside reading a travel book, uh, you know, as, as the next best thing. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, sort of
2: travelogues where you sort of go off and, you know, sort of do a sort of a step-by-step journey I think will probably be
1: less fashionable in in the future. Um, it'll be, you know, people, and I think, you know, like we said before, we'll, we'll see, you know, really see loads of different genres being mixed up. You know, I think, you know, that days have gone maybe where you can sort of say, right, even with the Burma book, which is, you know, it's a bit old-fashioned in that sense, where you can sort of say, right, I'm going to go to a country and, you know, and live there or whatever and, you know, and uh yeah, this is going to be my take on it i think um people will be maybe looking for something a bit different, maybe focusing on specific issues
2: mm-hmm.
1: within a within a country, you know specific you know whether it's you know or, or specific landscapes even right so yeah that's but, yeah i I have no idea, jeremy, obviously that's all just yeah Fine. i can't um I can't read in the future
0: right, but I think um you know the cal. Flynn book Islands of Abandonment uh it's one of my favorite books of of last year but this book you know very much she travels around the world kind of parachutes in uh and s- spends only a brief amount of time in each location but you can tell through her research um that she's a like a long time resident in
1: those ideas and yeah and, I, and, and, and very much and also you yeah, know she's not you yeah, know she's going in there for you know, that's very specific purpose isn't she? right right and she
0: has which, something to say.
1: Which isn't like sort of going in and saying, I'm gonna give you, you know, that sort of general picture of a country. I, I think that is probably, you know, not in that's definitely not in fashion at the moment.
0: Right. Well what do you have next on your plate?
1: Um, well I, I'm working on a couple of things, you know, which um, uh, you know, I mean, you know, I'll say, yeah, one of them is Asian set. Um, Uh, and yeah that's all I can say at the moment they they, they are um, I'm hopeful that they will progress um, onto you know to uh, you know make a contract with a publisher we'll see Um,
2: they need a bit more work at the moment Mm
0: -hmm. well uh, wish you good luck on those projects and we hope you find uh, a publisher for them and that they progress and whenever you know that's all said and done and They see the light of the world. Uh do do get in touch with uh Well, absolutely, uh, absolutely,
1: Jeremy. I will.
0: David, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Jeremy. You can find the episode show notes and much more at TravelWritingworld.com. Please remember to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app. And if you find the show valuable, Please consider leaving a review or supporting the show with only a few dollars a month at travelwritingworld.com/support.